Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. Uh, she is the founder of Illumination 360. She's an expert on the whole subject of wealth. And she's come out with a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Kristen. Thanks, Jordan. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You go into your story in this book a bit. Just give us a kind of a brief history of how you got to where you are today and what led you to wanting to, to uh, be such an expert on the, the subject of wealth. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted to. I, you know, really, I, I think that um, for me, it feels like this, this path, this has chosen me. I, um, the work that I do is with, um, with wealthy families, ultra high net worth families and, and business owning families. And everything I do is in the space of their human capital rather than specifically with their financial capital. So it's really about the people and the and it, who are in this human system of families that are wealthy. And um, and I I came to this work from a place in my own story, as you can imagine. Um, my my father is a successful entrepreneur. He um, the last company that he started, he actually started with with my oldest brother. Um, who is seven years older than I am, and, and together they took this company, and it was just sort of the right moment in time for what they were doing, and they were able to grow this company in a pretty short period of time um, and then take it public and sell it. And so while I had always grown up in a situation that um, where I didn't really think much about money, my dad had always been successful, and so we, I just didn't think about money really in any way, um, which I, I recognize it is a privilege in itself. Um, there was this, this moment in time, right, when I was leaving college and getting ready to go out to the workforce where my um, family had these series of, of wealth events. And so there was um, the taking of the company public and then the selling of the company. And it just shifted things enough in my own trajectory that it it woke up this curiosity about how to live with and navigate wealth and money well. Um, I spent a lot of my 20s trying to, to, to walk these two pathways. One, learning how to be a steward of jointly held assets with my family, learning the language of trust and estates and what a grat was and what an islet was. And I spent a lot of time really confused by what that entire landscape was and how I fit into it and what the impact on me would be. And then I, I had this dual path where I was getting a, a master's in business and public health and, and going out and working in the workforce and trying to find my own way. But those two things were not connected. And I felt very, um, I felt very much like, you know, not, I, I, like I couldn't, I couldn't connect them. I couldn't share with my public health colleagues. I couldn't really share the story of my family wealth story because it, it was like a whole different world for mo than most of those people were living in. And, and when I was at a family meeting and we were talking about trusts and estates and that kind of, of um, conversation, I felt like it had no place in the work that I was doing in, um, in my job. And so I spent a lot of my 20s trying to figure out, like, how, like what, what is this wealth for? And it's not wealth I earned. So how do I relate to it? And what's my, you know, what's my job? What's my duty with it? And, and how do I also find my own voice and my own path and, and also define what success looks like for myself? Because I had a role model for success of someone who's a big thinking wealth creator, right? And like most people who are really successful in business, um, you know, the, the way that my dad did things was very much like, you know, from my perspective, it looked like the Midas touch. Um, and I didn't think that that was going to be my path. Making a whole bunch of money wasn't going to be my path. And so my question to myself was, can you be successful in it if you're not actually building wealth? Yes. And how do you integrate wealth into your life when you haven't earned it? Um, so yes. those two things really converged for me in my late twenties, the, this personal quest and, and this professional path where I really realized that, that, um, I have a passion for working with people, um, on, 
on peak performance, on who they are, on, on making sure that, that they're, that there's a path to thriving for each one of us. And those two, two things sort of converged for me. Um, and I started working with the rising generation in high net worth families and found that, that the, they, they're a really interesting human system to work within. So that, that brings you kind of like, how did I get here? Um, it's okay. a pretty unique role that I get to play. Great. Let's kind of take a broad view of wealth in the world these days. We have lots of uh, billionaires and mega billionaires and some really wealthy people getting really, really rich, doing very, very well. But the vast majority of the people in the world are middle class or poor. And there's a tremendous resentment by the people who don't have of the people who do have. And that has all For kinds sure. of economic and political ramifications. Uh, kind of sum up the way you see the world today and the role that wealth is playing in the economy and the political environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, it's such a tricky subject because I, um, I, I think not many people would argue with me that having a, a significant wealth gap is not good for a society, right? Like having a, a big gap between the haves and the have not have nots is not good. It's not a, it's not a healthy situation culturally. And I think that one of the challenges really for us, if, if we want to heal that, I mean, we have a, we have a, um, capitalism-based economy, right? So we have the kind of economy that we have. We could we could have the debate about whether there's other models that that might actually support a healthier uh, society as it relates to wealth. But this is the one that we have right now. And the thing that I think is where the opportunity is is that we have so collectively, culturally, we have a pretty unconscious, conflicted relationship with money and by extension with wealth. Um, and I define those two things as separate. Money as being the thing that we can transact with every day and wealth being the accumulation of money to the point of abstraction, right? It's numbers on a page. You can't really imagine what, you know, a million or two million or a billion dollars is. You can just, you can really understand it more as an abstract concept. And I think like where, where the, where the challenge is, is that we continue as a culture to be very unconscious about our relationship, like our, our, how we feel about money, how, you know, instead it becomes this proxy or this stand-in. So in, for, for many things that are human desires and needs, like love and power and, um, and relationship, like money becomes the stand-in that we use to try to exert or, or to feel those things. But in fact, um, money is just a tool, uh, but we, we have a lot of, um, it's very murky for us, whether that, whether it shows up as a tool in our lives or whether it shows up with all of these other elements that it's really being a stand in for. I think culturally we have a, a pretty significant challenge in actually talking about money. And so whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, it, we, we still we still don't do a good job actually talking about it and how it plays out in our lives and in our culture. And so the, the thing that I make that I feel really quite passionate about is, um, you know, whether it's a good thing or not a good thing for there to be concentrated pockets of wealth, I, I won't, I'm not going to take a stand on that. But what I do think is that, um, that privately held wealth has the ability to do great good. And in our current economic system and in our current culture, there is big pockets of privately held wealth. But privately held wealth only has the ability to do good if, when there are people who are healthy in their relationship to it and ready to, to deploy it in ways that are really meaningful. And I think we have a lot of great role models as, as we look out at at some of the really big impact philanthropists that modern day philanthropists that are out there now. Um, and I think that that's where the real opportunity is to, to heal the, some of the challenges that right now a large wealth gap is creating. Indeed. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. Uh, she is the founder of Illumination 360. And you can find out more at her website, Illumination360.com. She's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. We'll be back after this. 
Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. Uh, she is the founder of Illumination 360, uh, which is an organization helping people make the most of their wealth. She's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Her website is illumination360.com. Welcome back to the show, Kristen. Thanks, Jordan. Tell us a little bit about Illumination 360 and what does it actually do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Illumination 360 is my private consulting practice. Um, I have been doing this work for about 18 years and it's evolved over time as you can imagine. Um, but where it sits today, I am, um, I have sort of three main focus areas in my work. I, I work with the rising generation in um, ultra high net worth and enterprising families. And I work with high net worth families, ultra high net worth families. So families usually that have experienced some liquidity, sold a business and then have liquidity. And, and then very often what they're navigating holding joint wealth with family members. So how do we make decisions around this? How do we make sure it has the impact we want it to have in the lives of our family members and our community? How do we have, have a healthy relationship and be able to have healthy dialogue with each other about it? Um, so that's the second group. And then the third group is, is a, uh, sort of complex because it has both family enterprise that has like operating businesses and families who own them privately. So the, the vast majority of my families in that space are they're multi-generational families who own active, significant operating businesses together. And so in, in that work, we're dealing with both corporate governance as well as family governance. Um, and wealth and the overlay of wealth and all of that. And so it's, it's fun stuff. But my, like I said, um, when we started, my focus is always on the human capital of the system and really making sure that, that the people within each of these family systems have the knowledge and the tools to be able to um, engage with what, they're, what they've been given, the privilege and the power and the resources that they've been giving, given in a, in a powerful and positive way, and that hopefully we can really turn wealth um, into a tool that can have great impact. What, would you, what do you define ultra high worth? What is the dollar amount that you have to have to get into that category? Yeah, I. So this is more of a this is more of a marketing phrase than a research phrase. But typically, um, when when banks, private banks, and and other institutions are talking about ultra high net worth, they're talking about thirty million and above. Um, high net worth is usually considered, you know, between five and 30 million. 
And then the kind of millionaire next door wealth is usually between a million and five million. Um, so really, the the range of ultra high net worth is quite high, as you can imagine, because thirty million to you know many billions is a, is a pretty big swath of um, different kinds of families and different kinds of family situations um, in those different what, wealth categories. distribution around the world? Uh, I've heard that China has more billionaires and things than America does. Roughly, kind of what is the distribution of high net worth people around the world these days? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so much of my practice is focused on the U.S. that I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at demographics in cross cultures. Um, so I, can't, I can't have an educated answer to that, but okay. um, I, I too have heard that, that China is, is like uh, ascending the ladder of, of very high net worth uh, people. So let's talk about the problem of a child coming into a family that has huge wealth. The parents uh, want them to be responsible and they don't want them to be spoiled, um, yet they've got all this wealth. What is the procedure that, that families should use to get that kid to be growing up and be responsible and want to give back and not just be like a spoiled rich kid? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the the thing that about raising kids in wealth is that the kids who are raised with with excess financial resources, they need the exact same skills that every kid needs, right? There are just developmental milestones, psychologically speaking, that that we all have to achieve in order to be autonomous, have agency, be able to to really drive our lives and and have a, a life of impact. Um so the, those, those skills remain constant regardless of your economic demographic. The, the thing that is different about raising kids in, in a situation where there's more financial resource than you need to support food, um, shelter, security, that kind of thing, is that um, wealth, money, wealth and money can be, uh, become a buffering effect, right? Like they can buffer kids from some of the natural consequences or um, natural opportunities that life can give them. And parents who can be very well-meaning um, and who have extra financial resources at times can, can just exacerbate that problem by not really allowing their kids to struggle, to have a, you know, appropriate doses of struggle, to really have to problem solve on their own, um, problem solve on all sorts of things, whether it's like Hey, you know, if you want to, if you want to play club uh, baseball and you, you need to get yourself to and from the field every single day of summer, like, how are you going to make that happen? A kid that has more financial resource and maybe a parent that's staying home and maybe access to an A&E or those kinds of things, they don't necessarily have to problem solve the same way that a kid who doesn't have those things and is still as committed to playing club baseball like they'll figure out a way to, to make it happen. And in that there's certain character traits and skills that you learn. So the answer to your question is that ultimately the parents, when you are, when you're parenting in a situation of more financial resources than you need, um, you need to be really thoughtful about what you're parenting for, because ultimately the having giving your kids the opportunity to experience the natural consequences of their actions is really important. And to give them the opportunity to learn to, to struggle for something that is meaningful to them is really important. And so um, in that, there's a lot of ways that when I'm working with families, we talk about how, how do you parent based on your values, not based on your finances. You know, it's, it's, it's the difference between is this the right thing to do for my kid, not, can I do it, right? Is it the right thing to, um, to pay for them to, I don't know, have, a, have three extra tutors, or is it, is it the right thing for me to ask them to really take ownership over their learning? And they need to sit down and figure out how they're going to, um, yeah, what their learning plan is gonna be. It's like, how much do I swoop in and make this happen, and how much do I ask them to be the ones to drive what they what, want what in their own lives? What happens if parents do it wrong and they overprotect their kids and they, you know, they get to the ball game by having a chauffeur bringing them there and they take care of everything and they're just super protective and want no risk or un unpleasantness of any kind? 
um, to kind of take care of everything for them because they have the financial resources to do that. What happens to kids who are brought up like that? I think one of the biggest one of the biggest things that I see is that that kids who are parented that way who turn into adults who they don't have they, they turn into adults who don't have the confidence or even the framework for knowing that they can be autonomous, that they that they know how to solve problems, how to think through a situation, how to have grit, right? The passion and perseverance for a long term goal. They're missing some key things that will help them adult well. Like you have to, the, each, each stage of life has its own developmental goals. And if you get to adulthood without having learned that you are capable of impacting, like your effort in to something yields a, a response out, right? You put good, big effort into school, you get a response out where you get more opportunities as a result. Like if you don't learn that and really have that seeded in you as a kid, it's much harder to be an adult and feel like you have the confidence or the capability to truly adult, to truly take ownership of your own life. Um, and, and ultimately, the, when I have worked with families where that's been the situation, one, the parents never do that on purpose. It's, they're, they're, they're doing what they think is the right thing, but it may not yield the outcome they want. But two, it can be very difficult for a 32-year-old man to start to figure out how he's going to problem-solve earning income, especially if he doesn't need to earn income. But, you know, at the heart of it, taking away the financial need to work doesn't remove the human need to work. And these are, these are all situations that, that end up um, creating an infantilization, right? Like, you can, you can continue to extend childhood well into adulthood by not allowing someone to really struggle and build the skills of an adult. Yeah. <clears throat> what do you think of the movement, I guess it's called the Billionaire's Pledge, uh, with Bill Gates that, uh, I don't know how many, yep. is, quite a few billionaires, including Warren Buffett, has said they're going to not leave anything to their kids pretty much and give it all to Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation because they can handle it best and basically give all their wealth to charity. Is, is that a, a good movement, do you think? You know, I think at the, at the end of the day, it, any, any time you're taking, you're making a choice about how to, what to do with the resources you've created and accumulated, understanding the intent matters the most, right? So just giving money away and to make it so that your kids don't get anything, to me that feels like, well, th there's probably a missed opportunity in terms of family conversations. Um, and, and there could be, you could really care at family relationships if you're doing that from a, from a place of, you know, I just don't want my kids to have this. I think that the idea of the billionaire's pledge is fabulous. I love the idea that people who have way more than they need are thinking about how they can use, use those resources to create impact and how it's not about the game for them isn't about dying with the most zeros in their bank and, and passing on the most money to their heirs, but instead to think about how they could use, you know, these people are people that have like have had lives that are like lightning in a bottle, right? Like they've made things happen that very few people can on an economic scale. And so the idea that, that you would really turn to, to giving it away in thoughtful ways, I think is fabulous. I think in terms of the impact on families, the, that, they're, that, that by choosing to do that, by choosing to give away a vast majority of your wealth in your lifetime, and then inviting your family into that process, that can be a huge growing opportunity for an entire family. And for those rising gen to be able to see that and be a part of it and see the impact that money can make in the world will gives the opportunity for it to shift from something that can feel like an entitlement, like why are you giving my money away, to, wow, we, our family has the ability to really do something significant here. Yeah, very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. She is the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. You can find out more about her and her organization at the website illumination360.com. We'll be back after this.
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. Uh, she is the founder of Illumination 360. Uh, she's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. You can find out more at her website, Illumination360.com. Welcome back to the show, Kristen. Thanks, Jordan. So you talk a lot in the book about decluttering. What are some of the ways to declutter and why is it necessary to declutter? Yes, yeah. Let me, well, let me first talk about what kind of clutter I'm talking about. Um, the analogy here came from this idea that so often as I'm working with the rising gen and these affluent and enterprising families, I see a lot of psychological and emotional clutter that gets in their way of, of them actually starting to figure out how to engage, one, in their lives, and two, engage the resources that they have access to in meaningful ways, right? And, that, and then you, you fast forward and you can see how you have sort of the train wreck trust fund story that, that shows up in the news that we, that we all point to and say, you know, wealth corrupts. And so what I, what I want to do is, is rewind back and look back, look at the points that this emotional and psychological clutter starts to form and, and help rising gen declutter and figure out like, how do I put the stuff in its right place so that I can do something meaningful with, with my life and with the resources that I have. And so this idea of clutter, you know, it's like, we all have clutter in our lives. It's like the disorganized, non-essential stuff that just accumulates and takes up space in, in our closets and in our drawers and that kind of thing. Next, the rising gen in affluent and enterprising families have, have their own version of clutter. And like I said, it's very often psychological, emotional clutter um, that, that can really create um, disempowering narratives for them. So some of the, I, I see generally four types of clutter when I'm working with these rising gen. Um, the first type is what I call money clutter, and money clutter is really the, the limiting beliefs around wealth. It's money stories that we've inherited probably from our parents or grandparents that may not serve us very well, you know, sort of a relationship to money that may not serve us very well. Um, and often it's financial behaviors that are over, that are overall, they're, they're harming um, their well-being, either excessive spending or, or in some cases, trying to move as far away as they can from wealth and money and, and disengaging from those resources and still having an unconscious and unhealthy relationship with it. Um, and often, like, it, it, it results in a lack of basic money skills, like the inability to budget, the inability to really understand sort of the value of a dollar, um, 
an inability to understand cash flow and credit. These are all things that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, like the infantilization of rising genwork, there's so many talented professionals around them who can take on, right, filing their taxes, uh, paying their credit card bill, making sure that their account doesn't get overdrawn, that there's, there's people around them, parents and trusted advisors alike, who can create a situation that makes it so they never really have to get clean and clear on their money skills and, and their relationship to money. So a lot of clutter piles up. Um, and the next one is identity like, clutter. You talk. What is identity clutter? Yeah, so identity clutter is the second kind of clutter I see pretty frequently. And that is identity clutter is really like false beliefs about who they are and who they need to be um, and what they can and can't do with their lives based on the, their, their projection of what wealth is and other people's projection about who they should be because they have wealth, right? There's, there's a lot of, in, in the rights engine I work with, there's, I see them often on this kind of teeter-totter between over-identifying with wealth, like really making it part of who they are, so that this idea that if it went away, like who would they be? And, and the other side is under-identifying with wealth, where they just, as I said a minute ago, they want to get as far away from it as they can and, and create an, their own life that is 100% separate from their family name and their family resources. And really, the, the sweet spot is finding how to integrate wealth and your wealth story into your life. And then from there, whatever you choose to do with the money will be coming from a place of conscious intention and a legitimate connection to, to who you are. But it's that lack of identity. It's that clutter that builds up that makes it complex. And your, your um, third one is relationship clutter. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so relationship clutter, this is so often... Oh, it's a big, it's a big pile of clutter for for a lot of the rising gen that I work with because often what can happen is because culturally we do have sort of a messy unconscious relationship with money and definitely with with wealth, we can these rising gen will end up in relationships where they're not really sure does this person love me for me or do they love me for what I represent or what I have access to. And if you haven't spent time in a lot of relationships that, you, that are like true blue, authentic relationships, it can be hard to be discerning about what, what is a real friend versus what is someone who's kind of a stand-in, who looks like a real friend, but maybe at the end of the day doesn't truly have your back and love you for who you are. And that relationship clutter can, can really create a sense of isolation for for rising gen feeling like nobody genuinely understands them and that they can't talk about the things that are that are real challenges in their lives because no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid. And then the fourth one is contribution clutter. What do you mean by that? Yep. So contribution clutter, um, I use the word contribution instead of work um, because people so often have a, a connotation with work that it's paid. Um, and very often, the, the rising gen raised in these ultra-high net worth families don't necessarily have to work for income they don't, or work for a living. They don't have to work to pay their expenses. Um, but the, the idea around this is that very often, the, these rising gen will have limit, limiting self-narratives about their value as a person because they, they don't have a sense that they, they don't have to work, and without having to work, they have this sense that they don't have any real path of contribution or that their contribution is kind of, you know, like play work, like, oh, yep, I'll go have a seat on the family foundation, but I only need to go to four meetings a year, and so I can say that I'm a trustee at a foundation, but I don't really work that hard. And all of that creates this internal um, pile of psychological clutter around really mattering in life, like your ability to wake up each day and say, it matters if I show up someplace, it matters how, how well I show up. And, and I, I mentioned this earlier, and all it, it really underscore underscores the point of this contribution clutter, which is this idea that, that removing the economic imperative to work doesn't actually remove our human need to work. And so the work doesn't always have to be paid to be valuable but really engaging in something where you can see that you're showing up to do what you do really well matters is a huge part of, of individual well-being. And 
the rising gen who don't have that end up feeling very lost. I want to talk about a very current uh, situation, which is the bankruptcy of FTX. Uh, we had an enormous surge in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin went up to $65,000 and there are all these crypto millionaires and billionaires being minted. And then the whole thing has kind of collapsed and, and Sam Bankman-Fried was like the hero for all these crypto bros and now it's all in tatters. How should people handle such a situation where there was such wealth created and it all kind of disappeared so quickly? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that it's one of the things that there's there's actually a, 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 a definition for this, for what they call sudden money syndrome, where um, we're on either side of the scale, where there's either someone who has, who has gotten a lot of money all at once, like a lottery winner or, you know, cryptocurrency goes crazy and suddenly you're a billionaire. And then um, the, on the other side of that, someone who's lost money quickly. And there's a, and so, you know, something like what you're describing right now, or someone is, you know, uh, yeah, had bankruptcy or, or some situation where they've, they've lost it all. And the thing that I think is, um, really important to be aware of is that, I mean, this goes back in, in many ways to, to this idea of identity and identity with wealth and that it, at, at the core of who we are as humans, if we over identify with anything that is in the material world, right? Like I have to have that house or I have to have I have to have a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars. Like what am I without that? Then, then we've we've kind of lost the plot. Like that's not our our real ability to be in the world and contribute doesn't actually have to do with with the how big the bank account is. And it can be crushing. I'm sure it is crushing for those who have thought that they were ultra wealthy and then the bottom fell out. And at the end of the day, that that's not the core of what one's identity is. And so you got to deal with the psychological dismantling of thinking that you were a billionaire and now you're not. Um, but that doesn't change the gifts and skills and the, the brilliance that brought you to the table that made it so that you could be a risk taker and moving into a, you know, a new type of currency that, that is, you know, on the, the, the history of, of man's relationship with money is, is kind of, new and different. Um, so yeah, I guess what is a better way to handle it? Kristen, what is a better way to handle it? Say you do hit the lottery or you know your cryptocurrencies go soaring and you have cash. What is a better way psychologically to handle it? So if things go against you, you don't get kind of destroyed. Yeah, that's a great question, Jordan. Um, <laughs> I I think that it really goes back to to being to being really firmly connected to your value as a human being and recognizing that, um, that, that earning more, having more, it could be fun. It could be, it, it, I mean, I bet it's quite a ride to, to go on a ride, like, you know, creating a billion dollars in a very short period of time because of how you've invested in cryptocurrency. I, I bet it's quite a ride. And, and I think that the healthier, the, the healthy version of that is you can still go on that ride, but you can't get overly attached to it being who you are, right? It's like the, the healthiest multimillionaires and billionaires that I work with, they still see money as this sort of game. Like they will, they'll sort of marvel at like, gosh, I can't, I just can't quite believe it. But at the heart of it, like what I love is to do this work that I'm doing and, and I, they're not actually overly connected to how many more hundreds of millions or billions of dollars they're creating because they, the thing that that's happening as a result of them doing something that they love. And so I think that the healthier version of that is like just to continue to stay really grounded in why are you doing this? And if, and if the scales start, start to tip where you're focusing more on like, wow, like I'm rich now. And now that means I look a certain way and I act a certain way. And now I'm different. It's probably worth sort of rechecking yourself and saying like, what is this really about? Because ultimately 
money and wealth are just a tool. They are not, they're, they're not who we are. Um, and it's, it can be pretty damaging when we start to believe that they are who we are and that we have to have them in order to survive in the identity we've created for ourselves. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kristen Keffler. Uh, her company is called Illumination360, uh, website illumination360.com. And she's the author of a new book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Kristen Keffler, is the author of a book called The Myth of the Silver Spoon. Her company is called Illumination 360, and you can find out more at her website, illumination360.com. Welcome back to the show, Kristen. Great. Thanks, Jordan. So we talked about the collapse of FTX. Another recent phenomenon has been the pandemic. Now, the pandemic created some tremendous winners and tremendous losers. Lots of people lost their jobs and so on. What did that do to the kind of wealth equation and the wealth inequality gap when we had the pandemic the last few years? Yeah. Um, from Well, it certainly would seem that it, it exacerbated um, it exacerbated that gap. I mean, I think you just named it really well that that many people on the the fringes, the you know, if you look at the lower economic um, side of the the scale, like a lot of those people who are in hourly jobs and in situations where they did not have great job security, they really they the pandemic is really hard on them, and that is something that that as a society. We really need we need to pay attention to right like those are very often the workers that make a lot of things happen, and conversely, um, there has been it, the pandemic has created huge opportunity for more wealth creation for those who had the ability to to the, who had extra resources and had the ability to you know invest and to take advantage of of what was going on econ- economically during the pandemic, and so I think that. Unfortunately, the pandemic really has created a put a brighter spotlight on that gap. Um, but there's also some incredible stories, I think, of how the power of of privately held wealth impacted the pandemic. And I think, you know, Dolly Parton and her foundation was she was definitely a luminary in that space. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation stepped up, and and I think both of those cases illustrate how how privately held wealth is actually an incredibly powerful tool because um, in those situations, they were able to move very quickly to deploy resources to the local community and the world community in ways that governmental governmental organizations aren't able to move so fast. And so I think that while the pandemic itself created greater strain and um, from a, as we look at our, our whole um, cultural economic picture, there's, there's been a lot of damage. There's also some really bright, bright lights that we can look at to say, yeah, and, and this is a, a case where, from my perspective, a lot of the client families I work with and, and definitely some, the big names I just named 
they moved into action and they were very willing to take resources and, and quickly start to create solutions. And I think that's, that's a silver lining. Are you concerned that the wealth gap may become so great it could lead to maybe revolution is the right word, but certainly a lot of disruption. I mean, you think of the French Revolution with Marie Antoinette and let them eat cake, and uh, the, the Russian Revolution where the the czars, you know, allowed Lenin to come in and create a communist. And and this has happened several times in history where the wealth gap just became so great that the people just revolted. Do you think we're headed in that direction, not only in America but around the world? No, oh, man. I mean, that's a. I, Maybe I don't feel entirely qualified to, to answer that, so I'll just answer from Kristen's own personal opinion um, rather from a, an academic seat. But I think that um, I do I do think that you know systems will human systems will only handle so much um, strain before they before they break, and sometimes that breaking point sometimes it can be. Uh, sometimes it's a legitimate breaking point, and then there's revolution, right? Like you, uh, many of the historical events that you named, are like that's what happened. Like the the uh, masses rose up to say this doesn't work for us, and that there's power in that voice, and there's that's a self-correcting system. Um, and I think you know, my hope would be that um, that we can actually get smarter, and both in our you know, in in America and our culture, as well as from from world cultures, like as a as a world community, that we could we could actually pay more attention to the cues of what needs to be tended to, rather than than having to push um, to push us as a society to the brink of of revolution. And I would say that um, over over time, human systems seek homeostasis, right? They want to get back to a level of, of stability and stasis. And I'm, and we're not there right now. So um, it is an interesting question about what direction are we headed and, and how much power do we have to actually avert, um, to avert that, to, to, to create a new normal and make, chart a new path. You talk a lot in your book about wealth 3.0 and uh, for advisors to become a wealth 3.0 advisor. What does wealth 3.0 mean to you? Yeah, so the wealth 3.0 is this idea. Um, originally, originally the term was coined by Jim Grubman, who's one of the leading um, one of the leading thought leaders in the field of family wealth and family enterprise. And um, so the, the phrase comes from him, but it's really this idea that over time, you know, if you think of the pre pre 1980s, we had what what he really terms wealth 1.0, which was like dynastic wealth, so you think like Carnegie's, Rockefeller's, you know, Pitt Karen's, exact, you know, big dynastic families. And those families tended to be patriarchal, have probably one advisor that that saw the patriarch of the family as their client. And it was very much a, uh, you know, money wasn't talked about openly. You didn't have conversations with family about it. And it very much, money and wealth very much felt like a birthright. And and that started to shift as um, as financial planning and the idea of life planning, having really thinking about the integration of values, like who am I and how do you how do I integrate that in my financial planning, which really started to come about in the 80s. Um, and that's also the time that that people like Joni Bronfman of the the Seagram's family, um, she published her PhD dissertation. And for the first time, the voices of inheritors were being um, were were being raised up. Where you were hearing, like, what is it like to be raised in a family like this, and and what are the, some of the hidden challenges that people don't actually talk about? Um, and so, for the first time, we actually started having a greater sense of of wealth and wealthy families, and this this idea that you could connect values to to wealth in a way that could create a more positive ripple impact. And so, um, so Wealth 2.0 really was, you know, from the 80s and the 90s, the, the 2000s, and, and what, but what we have seen, some of the downsides of Wealth 2.0 is that we started to really use a lot of, um, we, we, we were relying on, on research that wasn't super sound. So we, we started referring to, to quote unquote studies that, or research that, 
that um, said things like 70% of families are going to fail um, in their wealth transition and that family enterprise by the third generation is mostly dissipated or sold off. And, um, and those, that, those kind of, that drumbeat of fear is one that made it so families, instead of feeling like their wealth really could be something that could be shared, talked about, um, and, um, and really thought about more, uh, sort of more, more holistically, they, they felt very protectionistic. Like, I don't want this to ruin my kids. I don't want to, I don't want to have everything I've worked for be dissipated by the third generation. Um, and so we, there was a narrative of fear that really sort of was um, in the veins of, of that heartbeat of, um, of Wealth 2.0. And there's been a shift, a sea change at, at play here since the mid-20-teens. Um, and that's what we're calling Wealth 3.0, which is really standing back and saying, wait a minute, a lot of the, the, the stories we've been telling families about how, how damaging wealth can be, how, um, how damaging to family members, how it can be easily dissipated in three generations, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's not actually based on date, good data. So we don't, we don't know what the success rate of families are, but, but we should stop telling them that they're going to fail because that only makes families more protectionistic and want to sort of hide money from family members and to, to, to lock it down in trust rather than really being thoughtful about how do we share this? How do we talk about it? How do we have this wealth had impact? And so Wealth 3.0 is the invitation to advisors and to families to think one more holistically, to work with multiple different kinds of advisors, to recognize that you need people like me who focus on the human capital and you need really good tech, technical advisors, you know, like your estate planning attorneys and your CPAs and financial planners but we all need to be working together to make sure that we're actually achieving the goals of families, not just maximizing tax protection and, and minimizing risk at all costs, that you actually have to take the human component of all of this into consideration. Um, and that ultimately we need better research. We don't have good research that tells us what are the things that really successful families do when they own wealth well and it has great impact. What are they yeah. doing? How are they raising their kids? And so Wealth 3.0 is an invitation to that new way of thinking. Great. Well, thanks so much. We've learned a lot. My guest this hour has been Kristen Keffler. Her book is called The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. You can find out more at her website, illumination360.com. Thanks so much. We've learned a lot. Appreciate your being on The Money Answer Show, Kristen. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.